Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hey everyone, welcome back. We are live on the Canadian Story with Matt Strauss. Matt, welcome to the Canadian Story. Thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. It is our sincere pleasure. Um, can you just go ahead, brief your background? Who are you? What are you all about? What field do you work in? That sort of stuff. Uh, so I'm, I don't know why, I, I feel like starting with my age. I'm 37. Uh, I grew up in Cambridge, Ontario. I was born in Kitchener, Ontario. Um, I did uh, some of my schooling at Waterloo. Uh, then I went to med school at Western. I did uh, a year at McGill. Uh, I finished my internal medicine residency at Western. I did a critical care fellowship at Western. I've been practicing as an ICU doctor for the last 10 years, uh, for the last four years, uh, no, three years, basically since my then girlfriend, uh, started her residency in Kingston, I uh, had been teaching at Queens. I left that post in November, uh, shortly after I had become the acting medical officer of health for Haldeman Norfolk. So I, I get, I work in public health now, but my, my main gig, uh, for the last 10 years has been, uh, ICU medicine, ventilators, very sick people, et cetera. Right. So are you still in ICU now or have you graduated from that? Um, I, it's a hard thing to ever leave. Know that I could ever leave it entirely behind. So my, my aim is to do about a weekend a month, uh, in the ICU. Um, my, my, my colleagues keep asking me back a little bit more often than that. And I keep trying to cram a little bit more in my schedule. Probably the other thing I should have said about my bio is, um, about five years ago, I approached something like burnout where I was like, I can't do this 80 hours a week for the rest of my life. So I cut down to half time, which is maybe full time for a, a normal job. Uh, and I went to, I did a one year journalism program at uh, the University of Toronto. I've been writing stuff sort of ever since. And um, when the pandemic started, that writing kind of took off because I think, you know, understandably, a lot of people were interested to know what ICU doctors were thinking and feeling and talking about. Yeah, fascinating. So you're a medical doctor who works in the ICU and also has experience in journalism. That makes you a very valuable person over the last two years, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, a little <laughs> bit of experience in journalism. I, I don't I don't like to... Um, at the first day of that journalism program, they were like, now call yourselves journalists. And I was like, okay, I mean, I do understand if you've been uh, working at the Globe and Mail for 20 years or CTV, um, you know, doing the, the dog fashion shows and working your way up to international politics, like you maybe don't like interlopers like me calling themselves journalists. But yeah, I have a, a little bit of experience. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. So why don't we start here? Cause this is interesting. Um, how much ICU experience did you have during COVID? I, I'm sh I assume that you saw COVID patients. Yes. What was that like? Yeah. Um, well, and this might be a little bit more biography, but, um, what really started my COVID experience was that I, uh, married my now wife on March 14th, 2020. Uh, oh, wow. you may recall that the lockdown in Ontario started March 16th, 2020. So I was sort of up all night, the three nights before my wedding, just reading every single medical paper that existed on COVID-19. Um, and so there was this, this moment there after my wedding where I, I felt like I'd read everything there was to read about it. I still hadn't seen any. Um, nobody can read all the papers that are on COVID now. There's like over 500,000 of them that have been published, but it was, it was a couple hundred and I, I really went to town on them. Um, and, you know, we were trying to decide, like, should we cancel our wedding? Is my grandfather going to die? Um, we went ahead with it. It was... Uh, the best day of my life, like no question. Uh, so then everything locked down. The very peculiar thing that happened was the lockdown certainly changed people's behaviors. And the ICU that I worked at went down to 25% uh, occupancy, which has never happened in the history of that ICU in Ontario. And I, I as I mentioned, I, yeah. Yeah. I just want to interject here just to give perspective. What is pre COVID, um, average carrying capacity of an ICU. So it went down uh, to 25%. What is like norm? Yeah, they range. Um, so the, I, I worked in, at two hospitals. I don't want to necessarily name them uh, over the pandemic period. Uh, the one I think had a capacity about 24. The other had a capacity of about uh, 10 to 12. Uh, both surged higher than that during the, the third wave. But during that first wave, everyone was staying home. Everyone was locked down. And um, the one that I was working at at that time went down to like three people, which is never before seen, uh, certainly not in my 10 years there, uh, nine, 10 years. Um, and so that was one of my first tweets that went viral where I just said, hey, 
Um, we're still locked down. Uh, it seems to me that my hospital is empty. Um, that means like maybe we're locking down a little bit too much. They, like, cause the, the goal at that time was just to, um, uh, flatten the curve and to stay under capacity. So I was like, okay, if we, if we've been here for a while, like maybe we can, um, not line up for grocery stores anymore, that sort of thing. Um, and that kind of took off. It got, I don't know, uh, like 3 million views. It was peculiar. I think Ben Shapiro retweeted it. And I, I was like, I, and I think there was, yeah, there some of it was boosted by uh, what I was unaware of, conspiratorial thinkers who were like, COVID's not real. It's a scandemic. And I was like, I, 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 I read every paper there was. I knew COVID was real. Um, and I, it was a pretty flippant thing where I was just, walking around my hospital going, this is, this is weird. And I, I think it has public policy implications. Um, so it took a while for me to see any actual COVID because I wasn't in um, uh, Toronto or Montreal where uh, most of the cases were. And now I've spoken so long, I forget uh, your question. <laughs> no, it's just more like when, what was your first encounter with COVID like? Like what, what, what did you, what is your, as a frontline, someone who's right. experienced viewing it what is your opinion of the disease I think. right so when i did start to see a few cases trickle through um it was predominantly elderly folks with multiple multiple medical problems who were winding up uh, ventilated uh on life support um and sometimes unfortunately passing away so i became concerned in general that these these very heavy-handed lockdown maneuvers where we're kicking kids out of school, canceling hockey, AA meetings aren't happening anymore. Like, um, I don't know, community choirs, all these things that people get um, uh, meaning and encouragement from in their lives was just taken away. And I was like, this is going to be a mental health problem. There's going to be substance abuse problems. Um, so during that first spring, um, what I started to see was people coming into the hospital with, hopelessness, um, which can be expressed at like some people, I, I saw, um, I saw a, a woman with anorexia who completely stopped eating and passed away. I saw, um, in one week I admitted two, uh, seniors from a nursing home who, because their families had been kicked out, um, there was no one to feed them. And there were staffing crises because everyone was panicked about COVID and they came to hospital starving to death. Um, I saw people who drank themselves to death. I saw people who stopped taking their medications and wound up um, in a bad way because of that. Um, so I, I, I was just seeing more with my eyes having to do with what I thought panic, fear, disruption of normal, healthy activities. Um, and predominantly older folks with multiple medical problems uh, succumbing to COVID. A year later, um, with the arrival of the Alpha variant, there was a lot more COVID, um, but the the youngest person I saw who was perfectly healthy, who wound up on life support, um, was seventy six. Everyone else, and there were some younger folks with, and I I don't. It's not the case that I, you know, mean people on Twitter will say you want to sacrifice young people with medical problems. Like, no, I don't want to sacrifice anyone. I I want to focus our protection on helping the most vulnerable rather than paying 17 year olds, $2,000 a, a month to sit and watch Netflix in their home. I, I don't, I just think it was, um, uh, we, we jettisoned a lot of resources in places where it didn't do any good. And then there were people in multi-generational homes, uh, where, you know, where grandma lives with them and she has type two diabetes and, and there's no place for her to isolate. So if I had my druthers in, in that first year, what we would have said is we banned travel, the, the Ritz in downtown Toronto is completely empty. Why don't we have, uh, take all of that space, make it for uh, older folks or, or immunosuppressed folks to isolate. We could have done that. Um, we spent $400 billion uh, on the first year of the pandemic in, in a federal deficit. That, that number is enough to build a brand new hospital in every city and town in all of Canada. That number is more uh, corrected for inflation than we spent fighting five years of World War II. Like it was just such a massive blowout of all of our resources. Um, and I, I, I think if we, if we spent a hundred billion dollars on old folks and immunosuppressed individuals, we could have had much better outcomes. So that's, that was for the first year, my major criticism of our pandemic response. Right. Um, so oldest person in ICU is 76. 
Um, did you see no, many? The, the youngest healthy person, person was, uh, was the youngest healthy person. Yeah. Sorry, yes, the youngest healthy person. That's what I meant to say. My apologies. Yeah. So I, so I saw thirty-year-olds young- with medical problems. And one really harrowing thing. One weekend, I had two thirty-year-old pregnant women. So I would, and, and pregnancy is a state of health, but that was their risk factor, mm-hmm. um, and it was unfortunate that they had not had the opportunity to be vaccinated. This was, I think, in April of twenty twenty-one. Uh, two healthy thirty-year-old pregnant women, no other risk factors aside from their pregnancy, almost go on the ventilator. Um, because of COVID-19. And that and I, I'm a new father. My, my wife was pregnant shortly thereafter. That was extremely harrowing. So I am certainly not here to deny the fact that COVID-19 um, can be a very, very scary illness. But I, I do want to tailor our approach. And, and we'll get to that in terms of vaccines and mandates. I want to tailor our approach to provide support and medical recommendations for the people who need it and not for 17-year-olds who want to play hockey. Great. Yeah. Why don't that's that's a great place to elaborate. How would you see that support from the medical community playing out in a in a grown up and responsible way? Because at least from my perspective, I feel like we have this one size fits all uh, top down policy that doesn't allow for the nuance of individuality in the population of Canada. Every person is different, therefore every medical situation is different. How would you see a responsible rollout of of um, the medical healthcare system to something like COVID today? Like where, where should we be landing today? Today, I think um, like so much has changed. The major changes, we have the vaccines. They're amazing. They don't do what everyone hoped they would do, which was end the COVID-19. Uh, you know, many, um, many sophisticated infectious disease specialists in this province were chanting COVID zero um, just one year ago, right? And they should have known better. That was obviously not going to happen. So the vaccines did not live up to that. I wouldn't even call it a promise, that hope that many people had, but they have saved thousands and thousands of lives. Um, So if I had been 75 with type two diabetes and uh, emphysema, I would have been terrified of COVID until I got my vaccine. And once I got my vaccine, all of that fear and panic and social isolation that I had been experiencing up until that point, I would have liked that to have gone away. I would have liked us to say, congratulations, you have your vaccine. We can't make perfect the enemy of the good. COVID's not going away. Go live your life. Um, it, it, if, you, if you get COVID, um, this vaccine's providing 97% protection against hospitalization and death when it was originally rolled out, uh, if not higher uh, originally. And um, and, and you need to go do all the things that make you healthy. You need to start going for walks again. You need to see your family again. You need to celebrate Christmas, um, or, or whatever your holiday is. Um, that's what it would have looked like once the vaccines came out. Now we have terrific treatments like Paxlovid. Um, so I would have liked to have seen more, uh, courage or encouragement. Um, I would have liked to have seen less fear, uh, less, coercion, um, more and more returning to like fundamental principles like consent. That's what I would like to see right now. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to hit on uh, something because it's going to be very important for our listeners. Um, so you are, this is very good. This is very good. You are supportive of the technology of the vaccine. Uh, and you believe that it is, that it has been largely effective in the reason it was created. A lot of a lot of our listeners, and perhaps even myself and Zach, are not 100% on board with that. But this is important because this is how a dialogue happens, right? This is how you get information uh, out to people who maybe disagree. So there's a lot of people in my world uh, who believe the vaccine is incredibly dangerous, um, not just for the short-term health of people, which we've seen tons of short-term side effects of uh, people. I, I have paramedic friends who would line up at the vaccine centers and carry people out in stretchers as after they were getting the vaccine because they would have side effects, right? Um, why do you think there is so much fear around the vaccine? Mm-hmm. And it's not fear from, there's this idea that it's just these group called the anti-vaxxers, right? That's not the case. I've never had a problem with vaccines up until this point in my life, right? Uh, now people in my life have, but that's different. Why do you think this particular vaccine has, is it because of the lockdowns? Is it because of how 
public policy was handled. So there's a huge distrust of government. Or what is it about this vaccine that's causing so much social division? So one of my former philosophy professors, Maya Goldenberg, wrote a book that was published just last summer on the um, question of vaccine hesitancy. And, and, that, and that's the first important move she makes in that book is titling it vaccine hesitancy rather than like the problem of anti-vaxxers. Some people are hesitant to take it and we want to have grown up conversations with them where we acknowledge that it's their body, their choice. Um, and what she argues through a, like a ton of research, a ton of excellent thinking that she's done throughout that book is when folks decide not to take a vaccine, you know, the traditional vaccines, measles, polio, um, it's, it's, it's not usually, there's this caricature of those individuals as being uneducated, not knowing what's good for them, not understanding the science. It actually is often the case that they are very well educated, but do not trust the institutions that are recommending it to them. They don't trust pharmaceutical companies. They don't trust the government. Um, and so if we want to reach folks who are vaccine hesitant as people who do believe in vaccines, or, uh, in, and I'm not saying that you don't in general, um, we want to build trust. And it seems to me that kicking your kid out of hockey or um, giving you a mandatory 14-day quarantine because you went, uh, you drove to Buffalo, that's not a way to build trust. Like anyone who is already skeptical of those institutions, and by the way, a lot of the people who are skeptical uh, in Canada are from uh, immigrant or racialized communities who have a personal family history um, that makes trusting the government like difficult. Um, or foolish even in their yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've always said that I don't want to, and I, I, since I became the acting medical officer of health in Haldeman Norfolk, I've, I dramatically increased, I, I believe the vaccination rate in adults by treating them like adults and saying, I don't want to force you. I, I don't want your back up against the wall. I want to, I want to have grown up conversations about this. Um, and I want to convince you to get vaccinated. Um, particularly frankly, really, if you're an older person with medical comorbidities. So, um, but as to why this vaccine has been so controversial, why there's so much fear around it, it is a new technology. Um, it is a new vaccine. Um, many of my colleagues were saying, well, why do we, we have um, uh, the ISPA, the Immunization of School Pupils Act in Ontario, uh, that makes it quasi-mandatory to get your kids vaccinated for measles. Like you, but anyone can say, I have, a, I have a philosophical objection and not. So it's it's not really mandatory, but it's there. And they say, why don't we have these COVID-19 vaccines on this schedule? Or why don't we treat them the same? It's because when that act was introduced, the, the newest vaccine on the list was 12 years old. So they'd, they'd already given it to two-year-olds who did, whose families did want it for them. And then seeing that like they didn't get brain cancer, they didn't get kidney failure five years later. So there was, I think it, it just does take time to build that sort of trust in the vaccine. And um, the other thing is, I, I'm actually currently enrolled in a PhD program in the philosophy of science. Anyone who says we know what the long-term effects of something we invented last year are, is lying to you. That's, that, that is fundamentally an unscientific statement. You can't say that until you've done the experiment and you can't do the experiment uh, over 10 years until it's existed for 10 years. Um, so I think that, I, th I don't think these vaccines are going to cause brain cancer in 10 years. I don't think they're going to cause kidney failure in 10 years, but that's, that's like an, an intuition judgment call type thing, uh, a ju judgment call type thing that I can't make for someone else. I can kind of say, and so when I do counsel people about vaccines, I say like, look, buddy, I'm not interested if you get your 16 year old who's totally healthy playing hockey vaccinated. Personally, I like in, I want to do the most good I can as a physician, save the most lives as possible. You're 48, 50 pounds overweight, you're a smoker. We haven't tested you for emphysema. You probably got it. Uh, we haven't tested you for diabetes. You probably got it. Um, like, let's make a deal. We'll leave your, <laughs> not that I would ever do anything to your kid, but like, let's leave your kid alone and just you get vaccinated because you're kind of the one who's going to crash the healthcare system. Um, and I think if we have those sorts of consensual conversations with people, we actually boost the vaccination rates and, and in Haldeman Norfolk we have. Yeah. Yeah. Look, nuance. Imagine mm -hmm. that. Right. And I think that is, <clears throat> I, I think that is what the people from uh, my side of the argument and, and David's side of the argument found most obnoxious about the the way the the vaccination policy was rolled out was there was 
zero nuance to it. Where if as a doctor, you can say, hey, maybe your 16-year-old kid doesn't need it, but you're overweight and not as healthy as you could be, it might really benefit you. That is entirely reasonable. And I... I think the frustrate a lot of the frustration in the in the conversation came from the fact that there previously has been so little of that. Why do you think can you speak for medicine in general over the course of this of this kind of situation? Why do you think it was so one sized fits like one size fits all right away? And do you see more and more nuance creeping into the conversation? Uh, the the second part of your question is the easy part. Yes, absolutely. Um, and why it went down the way that it did, I think, is a matter of social panic. Um, I think there were a few things that had primed us to social panic. We have not had a pandemic before where we all had um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram algorithms uh, and Apple News alerts letting us know how many cases were in our community today. Uh, I think that... So I think like we we just have not evolved the social structures to deal with um, the the yeah the fear and panic and anxiety that social media can cause, and then you sort of double that when you have everyone stay home and do nothing except Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, etc. So I, I think it was kind of like a, a recipe for agoraphobia for a lot of folks because you were staying home, not seeing your friends um, and just learning about how terrifying the outside world is. So I, I, I do think a lot of people really uh, lost sight of the forest for the trees. Mm, I, this, the next part that I'm going to say is quite conjectural. Um, I don't, I don't want to be uh, foisted on this part or it's speculative. Um, I think part of what happened was that this disease started in China, which is ruled by um, one of the most evil governments in the world. They have 1.5 million eth uh, ethnic Uyghurs in concentration camps. Um, they have broken their treaties uh, with the United Kingdom regarding Hong Kong. Um, Tibet should be free. Taiwan should be safe. Like we've got a big problem on our hand with a, a very evil fascistic government that um, has frankly bought off a lot of elites in the in the United States. I, I watched this video of Michael Bloomberg, who was, you know, one of the five most likely people to be president as of 2015, sorry, as of um, 2020, uh, refusing to say that China is not a democracy um, because he has humongous financial implications uh, to that. Or, or like the John Cena video, where it turns out that he speaks fluent Mandarin and begged for forgiveness for saying that Taiwan was its own country. Um, anyways, that, that's a really long... Uh, a little bit of a diatribe or a segue, but because this virus started there, and of course the evil communist dictatorship did evil communist dictatorship things like lock everyone down and kill their pets, um, and then promulgated these views. There's the famous video of um, the Canadian uh, COVID czar at the time for the World Health Organization, Bruce Alward, who refused to take the question about Taiwan and then pretended that his laptop wasn't working and then it. Yeah. What am I supposed to believe that he's an independent expert who's going to give us the best possible advice, but refuses to acknowledge the existence of Taiwan? Um, so I, I think these lockdown. Oh, the other thing is the New York Times has reported that there were Chinese bots promoting lockdown in Italy and the United States in, in April of 2020. So I, I think we, in some measure, because it was there and because it was being promoted, we we tried a Chinese Communist Party way of fighting this disease that is not in keeping with our traditional liberal Western values. And interestingly, to go back to Taiwan, they did better than China uh, in terms of COVID-19 mortality. They did fantastic. And one of the things they did was not trust China. <laughs> they, yeah. they, banned, they banned travel from China, I think in January of 2020, when our political leaders were saying that would be a terribly racist thing to do. And Nancy Pelosi said, go to Chinatown and hug somebody, which is a great idea. I do think there should be more hugs and more people should spend more time in Chinatown. Um, but uh, I, I wish that we had followed Taiwan's example, Japan's example, South Korea's example, and not the Chinese Communist Party's example. Um, and it, it deeply disturbs me to this day, that our prime minister, when asked which government in the world do you most admire, said the Chinese Communist Party that has, he didn't know at the time that they had 1.5 million people in 
in uh, concentration camps, but he, he didn't know about Tiananmen Square. So, um, anyways, that, that was a really, really long answer. But I would just like no, us to that was go a, back to the country answer. we used to be. Yeah, yeah, I see that. So, okay, so why don't we do this then? From your medical perspective, um, let's just run through a couple things that our country has experienced and get your take on it. So, lockdown from a medical perspective, like let's let's even leave out. Um, all of the substance abuse and domestic uh, abuse and all of that sort of stuff that came along with it, just from the perspective of the virus, how do you see, do you see lockdowns as useful? So I wrote, and I, I, I still, I don't know if I should have, but I wrote in uh, March, 2020, my first piece for the spectator in the UK, I said, I'm glad the lockdown happened. It seemed to me that some people weren't taking this seriously until they saw society stop. Namely, my grandfather. My grandfather was like, ah, it's, uh, whatever, it's COVID. And he was he was high risk um, until he was vaccinated. And I saw like he really started taking it seriously once that lockdown happened. So it certainly affected behavior change. And on some level, you know, my whole life, if there's a hurricane in Florida, the government orders evacuations. And that's not in keeping with traditional civil liberties, but it's like, oh, it's an emergency. We're just doing it for the week. Understandable. So I don't want to say... Uh, or I'll put it this way. Now that I look back, if I realized what a slippery slope we were dealing with, I'm not sure that I would have written that. Like if, if by not having the two week lockdown, we could have prevented the two years of social disruption and erosion of our civil liberties. I might not have said that. I, I, it was unimaginable to me that that's what might've happened. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I agree with that two week lockdown. Like, look, I do think that you can make cases go down uh, by locking down. Um, but cases were never what mattered to me. Hospitalization and deaths were what mattered to me. Right. And the lockdowns only work so long as you lock down. Um, there was this sort of ridiculous meme uh, on certain areas of Twitter that was like, we need to lock down hard now so that we don't lock down later. And it's like, well, this is a cat eating its tail. Um, as soon as you open up again, it, it's going to pick up where it left off until everyone has had it. it. I used to say until everyone's vaccinated or uh, naturally immune, but we now know. Every, everyone's going to get it uh, if they live long enough, like unless you get hit by a bus um, before, like if you live long enough, you're, you're going to get it. So I, I don't think lockdowns um, ultimately save lives. I do think that they can change the shape of the case graph. Um, and now if that, if the shape of the case graph does exceed your hospital system capacity and you end up with people with COVID um, dying, not able to get into the hospital, then yeah, I, I could see that changing that shape, flattening the curve, you know, two, week, two weeks to flatten the curve. That could make sense. But then you have to say, well, wait, why is our healthcare system um, so close to collapse on a good day? So if you, and I'll, I'll ask your listeners to do this, you Google Ontario hospitals overwhelmed 2019, Ontario hospitals overwhelmed 2018. You can do that. You can go back all the way. I did it till 2003. Uh, so the last 17 years, there's been Globe and Mail and Toronto Star and CTV articles about the hospital system is overwhelmed. Um, so if we said we're going to flatten the curve to save the people who won't have a hospital bed for two weeks and then build, I don't know, 20% more hospitals. In this province, there's not been one net new, There's sorry, there has only been one net new hospital constructed in the last 30 years. So when, it, when we lock down again, the spring after, um, and if you if you go back to the numbers, we actually had few we had less ICU capacity a year later than we did at the start of the pandemic. And I, it was like, why is wait, that? What? Why is that? Um, look, I'm not a premier of a province. Um, I've never ordered the construction of a hospital. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not a, I'm not a construction worker. I don't, I don't know how long it takes to build something safely, but, uh, I, I, I like bottom line, I don't have an answer for you. We, we could have converted warehouses. Uh, we did like we had field hospitals that we just didn't end up using because it never became as dire as that. Well, con um, construction is one thing, but you said you had, there was less capacity a year later, not, not even on par. Yeah, well, I what, think they. What would cause capacity it, it, to shrink? Was it just that they were those beds were being used? Yes, those, okay. I would say those beds. And you, you asked me to leave out the harms of lockdown type stuff, but um, 
those beds were now being used by people who had their surgeries canceled for the last year, who had their cancer screening canceled for the last year, whose alcoholism uh, had had uh, exacerbated because they didn't have counseling for the last year. Um, I think I think that is what accounts for that diminution okay. of capacity. Okay. That makes sense. Um, <clears throat> there's something huge that I want to jump into that we, ha- we haven't gotten to yet. Um, the reason I came across you was because you put out a tweet regarding um, Western in London, Ontario, mandating boosters for all staff and students going into the fall semester. So third dose, mandating third dose, not fourth dose, mm-hmm. as, as far as I can tell. Um, why, don't you, why don't you give us your perspective on that? Because I think you had some really great things to say. Sure. Um, this mandate is not in keeping with the science. Um, I was always really perturbed by like the hashtag follow the science um, babblings that happened on Twitter. Often they weren't in keeping with the science, but they were babblings on Twitter. This is my alma mater. This is a fantastic school. At the time of my life there, I respect so much um, the professors who taught me what I know about medicine, my colleagues who are still there. Um, For them to claim to be following the science and just obviously not following the science is a big deal to me. Um, it's frankly, it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, and they say that they've consulted their experts, my friends and colleagues who I I speak to, um, uh, fairly regularly, they were not consulted. I don't know which experts they consulted. I don't know what science they think that they're following. And they need to explain that, um, before coercing young people into putting something into their body. Um, can I interject really quickly? I think publicly, we have to stop using the word experts. And like Mm -hmm. citing papers, we have to cite who those people are. I think that would go Mm -hmm. a long way. Because experts is a catch-all for, this is what I'm going to do, and I've consulted someone, shut up, this is right. Right? And it's a cop-out. Absolutely. Sorry. So I just just wanted to say that because I think it's an, I think it's an important point that we should try to think about going forward. But anyway, continue. Well, the issue is I I think people confuse the idea of expertise and credentials. Like I can go do um, a degree in something 20 years ago, not have any experience in that field and then go on CTV news. And and if, if they agree with me, they'll call me an expert. That's, that's, that's not expertise. Expertise is not a credential. Um, Expertise is something that you attain by dealing with a field of knowledge every day, uh, both in practice and theoretically. You read about it, you argue about it, you write about it. Um, that's what makes you an expert in something. Um, it, so when I, it's freely accessible for anyone who, want, who wants to develop expertise in a subject. All the papers are, well, you might need to have a library uh, subscribe or a library access through a, a university. All the papers are there. You can stay home and read uh, the scientific papers for a thousand hours, and then you can have expertise about it. So what I posted on my Twitter were two uh, papers. They're recent. So I understand that maybe Western's experts are not up to date. Um, two papers, one in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one in Nature Communications, showing that after four months, the booster shots provide 0% protection against transmission of COVID-19. So if I'm Western University and some people who are have already paid tuition, have already declined other offers of acceptances from other universities um, and classes are to start in two weeks. And I say, Jim, uh, you took a booster in January, eight months ago, that is now providing 0% effectiveness at preventing transmission. Jill, you didn't, you're kicked out because you're a risk of infecting others. That's nonsense. That's frank nonsense. And the papers are there accessible for everyone. So if you want to say you're an expert, tell me which papers you read, why you haven't read these ones, how you interpret these ones uh, next to the ones that um, that you 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 have been reading, um, and let's have a scholarly debate about this. This is a, a, a this is an institution of higher learning. Even if it were the case that um, their experts are right and I'm wrong, uh, and I lack or and you know and Jill who didn't get her booster shot lacks scientific expertise, even then. If the problem if the problem is a lack of scientific understanding and expertise, why would you deny Jill an opportunity to get a scientific education at the University of Western Ontario? Like, you're not you're not helping anyone. Like, then you so suppose it is the case that Jill is just coughing COVID um, because she didn't get her booster shot. Now she's at home with her elderly parents. That doesn't make sense either. You're you're not saving 
um, you're, you're saving face at your institution. You're not, you're not protecting the community's health. Um, you, you, if it were the case that the, that she was scientifically wrong not to take the booster shot because she'll infect others, you should get her to university as quickly as possible and explain the science to her. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's pandemic, it's public health theater. Um, it's, it's to assuage anxieties of, dare I say, um, boomer, uh, faculty members who have, have just been drinking fear mongering Kool-Aid on Twitter for the last few years and haven't been keeping up with the science. Sorry, that was a little bit more strident than I, I try to be, but I, <laughs> no, I, I, I think I appreciate that. I, <clears throat> I have a few questions regarding this because I think it's interesting and I'd like your perspective because yours is different than mine, at least on the vaccine, but very much the same conclusion, different data points. Um, <clears throat> why do you think that the, it's become, it hasn't, it's not about science anymore, right? It hasn't been for a while. And one of the things that drove me honestly to a, to a place of rage and I don't have the, uh, let's call it internal uh, character fortitude to stay as calm as you do about these things. I have to get much angrier. But um, what I could not abide, and I don't have a medical education, but I have a high degree of psychological and philosophic education. I couldn't abide this idea that trust the science was a phrase that we were using. Trust the science is, in my opinion, an abomination, both on a logical and philosophic perspective, right? Because science is not something you trust. Science is something you doubt. And that's how you get better at science is by constantly testing thoughts, right? So why, why do you think that trust the science has become this almost dogmatic mantra of the pro-vax crowd? Um, you, you asked sort of a practical political science question at the end there, and you made sort of some full, uh, some philosophy slash or um, epistemology claims in the first half. Yeah. Let me say what I disagree with, or I want to add more nuance to. Um, you might at times in your life need to trust the science, right? So if you are having a heart attack and you go to the emergency room and the doctor says, you need to do this um, or else you're going to die. Uh, you may not be in a position to independently evaluate all of his claims based on the education that you happen to be bringing to the emergency room that day. So it can behoove you at times to trust an expert. I think that you develop that trust over time. Like it's, it's best if you develop that trust before you got there. Um, so if there's lots of people who don't trust Western medicine, I practice Western medicine. I believe in it, but I'm not willing to hide its flaws. There's, there's too much pharmaceutical money in Western medicine uh, most egregiously as seen with Purdue Pharma, uh, pretending that OxyContin was totally safe and nobody would get addicted to it. And uh, throughout the 90s, making billions of dollars and causing, uh, in you know, they, they weren't the sole cause, but a large part of the cause of an opioid epidemic that killed more people than the HIV epidemic in North America. So there's lots to criticize. And we don't, um, by saying, shut up, I'm the doctor, uh, Purdue Pharma is are the pharmaceutical experts. Don't you dare question us. That's not how you build trust. And then when you end up in the heart in the emergency room with a heart attack, and you say, "I don't trust these people," um, you're wrong because you do need treatment for your heart attack. But you you're sort of understandably wrong. Um, so I, I think sometimes you do need to trust the experts. The way they build trust is by being open and transparent. And um, when you're um, demonizing scientists and physicians who have different opinions than you, that doesn't in the long term build trust. And when you have this sort of manufactured consensus, that doesn't build trust. Um, I've lost the second half of your question. I'm sorry. There you no, go. It was basically like, why do you think, because basically the way that people who've decided not to take the vaccine have been painted is that they're anti-science, which in and of itself, I think is anti-science. It is anti-science to say that a different perspective so while I, you're, you're totally right, and thank you for adding that nuance, there's definitely time to listen to the experts and all of my political organizers, I constantly tell them, you just don't have as much experience as me, so this is why you don't know what's going on. So I totally get what you're saying, and I agree in principle, but I do not agree that trust the science is a epistemologically accurate statement, 
right? I don't think it is, um, if we're taking it in the abstract and we're moving out of like, say the, the crisis moment of when you're going, when you're in an election campaign or you're having a heart attack, right? But when we're talking about whether or not you should simply trust someone because they know more about something, that is actually a logical fallacy, right? That's called an argument from authority. It's not just because someone who has authority on it says it doesn't make it true, right? Right. It makes it practical at times. And sometimes right. practically true is true enough. Um, if if I asked you what year George Washington was born and you told me and I was like, prove it. Like, we're both going to have to go digging. Like, we're both going to have to get train tickets to Virginia and do like digging through or it was probably right. I don't know, the National Archives. Right. Um, like, it's just a lot of work. Uh, when I could have just Googled it on Wikipedia and and trusted the expert the experts at Wikipedia, um, so but like, I, I I think Ronald Reagan solved this problem uh, as he did so many trust but verify like um, uh, you can kind of uh, sorry to swear you can shit test things you can oh, say yeah. well so here's a here's a paper. Um, I'm inclined to believe its conclusions, but like, is that a good journal? Um, has that, has that journal published fabricated data before? Um, do, are, do the, do the authors have financial, um, uh, conflicts of interest? Uh, and, and you can, you can choose for yourself. What are the three, four questions that you want to ask to verify before you extend trust? Um, are there, are there dissenting papers? Were, were the dissenters kicked off of Twitter and kicked out of their universities? Um, and then like when some of these questions you answer yes to, and you're like, ah, it's, uh, it's a few too many yellow cards for me. I'm not going to trust this. Yeah. That's, that's part of being a thinking person. Absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. So, so here's a question for you then. Um, that's, that's a great, that's a great way of looking at, at papers and a, a great way of looking at the problem. And the idea of a shit test is awesome. Um, there were a number of highly qualified throughout this process, highly qualified doctors. Um, and I'm thinking of one in particular who testified multiple times in front of the U S Senate and is highly published who took a stance against the vaccine and was kicked off Twitter and was kicked out of his institutions. What do you say to something like that? So I'm, I'm speaking specifically about, uh, Peter McCullough. What's, what's yeah. your take on oh, that? Oh, I know. Um, so I listened to Peter McCullough on the uh, Dark Horse podcast. I think he, he gave a, a long, and I was like, I, you know, he is well published. He uh, is obviously intelligent. I'm going to hear him out. He went on a, a few limbs that I wouldn't go down. I, I like he, he. I thought that he treated a few things as certain that I would treat as conjecture, and. So that's kind of my shit test, but I can't disprove him. The things that he was saying were certain. I was like, oh, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I myself would be more circumspect. And I, I think I would acknowledge lack of clarity on some of the things that he said. So that's my shit test. Um, I'm you know, a former academic, uh, uh, working in public health and an ICU doctor. My shit test is quite high. I'm not, I'm not saying he's paid off. I'm not saying he's a lot. Like, um, I, I wouldn't, based on that podcast, I wouldn't follow him into the brink. Um, I, and I, I, it was a year ago. I listened to it. I can't, um, I can't say, I, I can't even say, I can't even, I remember these reactions that I had, but I can't even remember to which claims in particular it was. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so uh, I think that, um, but I think that so for, for you both, seeing him kicked off of Twitter instead of having his his claims systematically deconstructed, because you know, you're you've like your your shit test flags are going up. You're like, hang on, he's well published and he's kicked off Twitter. What's going on? I think that was the wrong move. I think that's only increased your lack of trust in this in the in the institutions. Um, and that's to the detriment of civil society. So he should have been left on Twitter and he should have been um, uh, rebutted there extensively. Yeah. I couldn't, that's, if, if, if that would be just what people did, I would be overjoyed. If people oh would goodness. actually have the argument. Oh my goodness. It's I just, not what's happening. It's just not what's happening. I, that, and David's exactly right. And, and, uh, you're right as well, Matt. 
I just want people to be able to have the conversation. And whether that's in an institution like a university where people bring their respective arguments and come at it from a an academic perspective and have it out, I love that. If it's, I mean, it's it's less purified if it's if it's on uh, a venue like Twitter. Twitter is a a place where terrible ideas propagate immensely fast and <laughs> that's problematic, but I don't think shutting people up is the right decision because you're right, it does damage um people's perspective of institutions that are incredibly helpful. And um on this podcast, especially over the past two years, we've spent a fair amount of time um critiquing and criticizing and calling into question um, decisions recently that the medical community has made. But that is not to say that the medical community and the institution of Western medicine is at its core faulty. I don't believe that for a second because I would be the first person to line up for a doctor if I was having a heart attack. Obviously, (laughs) it would be Mm -hmm. an amazing opportunity to trust an expert. Yes, Absolutely. Um, so I'm actually interested in reinstating open dialogue and trust between the general citizen and the institution of medicine. As a doctor, how do you see us building back some of that trust? Mm. I just want to tell you a, a little anecdote um, uh, before I answer your question in terms of shit test and openness. So when I was on faculty at Queens, the chief of my department at a department meeting in about November of 2020, so before even the vaccine papers were published. And I remember sitting there and I was looking forward to there being a vaccine. Um, I, I had no qualms whatsoever. I thought it was going to take a year and a half. That's what everyone said at the start of the pandemic. Uh, and he told us the vaccines are coming out. If you have any concerns about them, keep them to yourself. And I was like, wait, what? You just, you're going to tell 160 physician scientists at a university, a good university, um, like fundamentally predicated on the idea of academic freedom, that if, if this particular treatment causes you any concern for any sort of patient in any sort of situation, shut up about it. I was like, whoa, just, whoa, where, where are we right now? Um, So I think that in terms of returning institutional trust, step one is institutional transparency. And to go back to Western, instead of saying our experts told us, say which experts, say which papers they were looking at, publish their deliberations. Like you, And I know there's crazy people online or and maybe, I don't even think there would be if you said, these are the, we struck this committee of, of 20 scientists, here's the minutes from their meeting, here's the attached papers that they were looking at, go through it yourself, um, uh, that, that transparency and accountability are terrific ways of building trust. We all know that that's, that's been political slogans, um, for, for a hundred years. Um, I think apologies are in order. I think a lot of people, um, were coerced who shouldn't have been coerced. I feel a lot of people were censored who should not have been censored. Uh, it's, it's time for like peace, peace and love, unity and respect. Um, uh, I haven't I haven't uh, been to an EDM show in a long time, but I, I think those core values are, are how you build uh, how you build trust. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and it seems to me that that is how you approach your work, and I very much appreciate that. Um, again, because it's been frustrating not seeing that, um, and I'm happy to hear that from your perspective as well. There are, are more and more who are taking that approach. Um, because I think we need that from our medical field right now if we are going to repair some of this damage and help people with medicine, because that's what medicine is there to do, right? Um, just We're, we're kind of closing in on the end here, but just as a blanket statement, do you think um, there should be any mandates in place within our country for this vaccine, or should it be left up to the individual to choose? My preference is that there'd be no mandates. Um, so an interesting thing is, and then people will say, well, what about the measles and mumps and rubella, uh, you know, the traditional mandates that we have in Ontario? Well, first of all, they're barely mandates. Second of all, I think it's only three of our um, provinces that have those school-based mandates. 
And um, it's, it's just not a make it or break it thing. I, I think, I just think um, uh, going to force, it's, it's like we, we've, uh, we've tried nothing and nothing's worked. Like just going straight to mandate when we can do education, we can do um, uh, like, like we, we can do doctor's visits Like just come talk to your doctor about it. Um, uh, I, I, I don't see a place for mandates. I do see, you know, I, and that doesn't mean that there can be no, I'll put it to you this way. I have coerced people in medicine. Um, there's uh, anyone who comes to the hospital following a suicide attempt who says, I'm going to go kill myself again or uh, attempt to kill myself again. I fill out a form that takes away your ability to leave the hospital. Um, that it's a legal document. I have to, I have to put down all of my reasons for why I'm doing it. It's time limited. You can get a lawyer. Um, it's, I can, I can keep you there for 72 hours until we can find a psychiatrist to assess you. If the psychiatrist wants to keep you for longer, there's a, um, an adjudication body that you can appeal to. Um, there's all these guardrails in place in a pretty extreme situation where you've tried to kill yourself. Um, typhoid Mary is another example where she was causing typhoid. Like she was, she was refusing to take the treatment for typhoid. She was going around giving it to people. She was ordered to stop working in a kitchen. She just had to, she could have worked at a clothing store, but she kept working in kitchens and they were like, you're going to jail typhoid Mary. Like you can't do this to people. Um, so I think that there is a place to coerce people who are actively sick and actively a danger to others. But no, I don't, I don't think you should coerce the general public uh, in the way that we have these, these mandates need to go away. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, I, I have think- one last question that I, I really want the answer to, because I think that the listeners are definitely going to want the answer to. So you're sitting in a class where an authority at school basically says you're not supposed to be scientific anymore. Right? You're not, you're not allowed to use science on this. This is now dogma. You're not allowed to question this. Mm. Yet you still believe the vaccine is effective, even though the methods being used to push it are totalitarian and frankly, unscientific. Why? Um, why are people being dogmatic about this? I think. No, no, no. I think why, a- why do you? Why do you still think the vaccine like is good? And I want the actual answer to this because this is oh, important. Okay. Yeah, if you have seen all this evidence that it is being pushed by people in an unscientific and undemocratic mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen published data sets that. Y- were many experts who I trust, some names I know from countries all over the world, keep finding the same thing. That if you if you get your two shots, um, you are far less likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID-19. Um, and I can go through their methods. You can download their anonymized data sets. There's just, it's too, there's too many independent pockets of people with no overt um, conflict of interest or reason to try to fool you uh, who keep finding the same thing all over the world. The vaccines do prevent you from dying from COVID-19. And then there's also the testimony of my own eyes. So when all of the medical research and what I see every day when I go to work, um, when I, uh, when there were big waves of COVID that we dealt with at the ICUs that I work in, um, it was extremely, extremely rare. So I, I maybe took care of a hundred and some people with COVID over, over the, the year and a half that I was doing mostly clinical medicine before public health. Um, I think I saw one person who was fully vaccinated uh, wind up dying in ICU of COVID-19. And, and uh, like I say, so a hundred to one, it was, it was largely unvaccinated people that were dying. So that plus the published research I have a high degree of faith in. Okay, no, I, I appreciate that. That's what I wanted to know. But it's so fascinating to me because, like you said, I think it's a very important point. Um, they've ruined the trust of so many people by how they treated people uh, and by how governments decided to treat people. That, it, that Even when you say that, I know most people, even to a degree, to be honest myself, are like, well, he's wrong, right? Which is funny, right, uh, to think, because I know that that's not a uh, scientific perspective on my part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it has become so intensely polarized. And like uh, that this topic 
it within society that it has become almost dogmatic for both sides. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think there's dogmatism on both sides. And yeah. that is, uh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, I agree. On that, on that idea though, I, I would say, I, I what I want to say is I appreciate you. Um, as someone who uh, shares viewpoints that are not necessarily my own, I love the fact that we were able to come here and sit down and have a responsible and reasonable and kind conversation to try to figure out where everything sits. And I really appreciate your perspective and I appreciate your expertise and I appreciate all the hard work that you've done trying to make sense of it for yourself and trying to help people and trying to get our country through this because, um, because that's like, it's, it's been crazy for all of us and you were on the front lines of that. And I just want to thank you for everything that you've done, man. Zach, that's really nice. Yeah. I, I want to say a very similar thing. Um, I appreciate you coming on here and speaking to us. And the reason I'm asking you these questions is because they mean a lot to me. And the last one that I would ask is there is a very prevalent rumor. Very prevalent rumor backed by seemingly by data that the vaccine reduces fertility in men. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the data out of now Israel and Germany that Mm. for the first five months after taking the vaccine, uh, fertility drops. I can send them to you afterwards if you want. But you've obviously studied this. I'm positive patients have come to you and said, is this going to affect my fertility? Can you speak to that fear that a lot of people have? Thankfully, some of my friends vaccinated having perfectly healthy kids. That's great. I just want to know your perspective as someone who has studied this way more intensely than I have on the scientific side, because I know it's a huge concern for many people that are listening to this. Um, I actually have not looked into this topic. I've looked into the female fertility topic. Um, so I can give you some general principles that when you're saying it, I, if you want to send me some papers, I'll review it. And I, I can tell you what principles I would look at when, when anyone makes any sort of medical claim, like reading medical literature is actually hard and frankly, journalists aren't good at it. That's why in the, in the newspaper, everything both causes and prevents cancer, right? Like chocolate's good. Chocolate's bad. Garlic's good. Garlic's bad. Blueberry's good. Like who can keep up? Um, because they're not they're not drilling down to like, is this a good paper? Is this likely to be a true finding? Um, So is there a control group in these papers? Was it randomized? Did they, did they, are they, is it a, is the control group like the um, treatment group? So did you give it to a thousand people? Did you give the vaccine to a thousand people who are a thousand men who are a lot like the thousand people you didn't give it to? Um, now, if it's not randomized, I should suspect, um, and if it's from Israel, and where was the other one? Uh, Germany. Germany. Um, I, I, let's say there's, I don't know so much about the religious scene in, in Germany, but suppose in Israel, there is a group of religiously conservative individuals who are skeptical of vaccines and are more likely to have 14 children. Um, then that would cause that finding, right? Like if it's, if it, and, and that could be the case in Germany as well, that the people who are more interested in starting to have large families in their 20s than the laptop class, uh, like myself, who had my first baby at, at uh, 36, I was. So that would be a, a pretty intense confounder that if you don't randomize, you'll never sort out. And then also I got, I, my wife and I uh, yeah. conceived a child shortly after getting our vaccine. So, which is anecdote, but again, when, when the so on the female side, up with studied them. this. What have you found? Um, I, I couldn't quote the papers off. Like it, it's a, it's a pretty niche topic. I couldn't quote the papers offhand, but I have generally found the um, whatever signals exist, and I, I, I found there's plenty of papers showing no signal, no no correlation between loss of fertility in women. It, it, there was more about um, menstrual irregularity, which I don't. Uh, let's just optically let's not be three men discussing um yeah yeah i agree Uh, (laughs) that's why i Uh, I talked about the male studies to be honest yeah yeah (laughs) but i i don't i don't see i i didn't see much of a signal and what signals uh were proffered um i found hopelessly confounded by the sorts of things that i'm describing Mm. although i appreciate i really appreciate that that's good news for a lot of people i think to and we want to get that out to people that it's probably not as much of a concern as maybe they think it is. Um, 
anyway, thank you very much for coming. Uh, hopefully we weren't too, I don't think we were too aggressive, but hopefully we weren't too like on the I'm other side. Not aggressive at all. But, uh, yeah, but uh, I really appreciated you coming on here. And I think you're the first person I've talked to on this topic from the other side that I've been like, uh, I, I feel fully trust, let's call it. In what you're nice. saying, I believe you're saying what you're saying. So, <laughs> hypothesis works. Professor Goldenberg's book <laughs> exactly. is right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, amazing, Matt. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the CAD Story. That's the C A D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great our country is.